0: This I've walked your busy cities and seen your country towns. I've seen your golden sunset when evening rolls around. I've watched your dancing moonbeams upon your silver sand. To me, you're a beauty. I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they blow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the I'd West coast this, mountain, coast, this is Balladicoast. This is the 200th sky, episode on July 30th, 2020. On I'm
1: Strapalana Boom.
0: I'm Ian I've Bushfield.
2: I'm Mr. Repressed.
3: And I am Jillian Studs.
0: Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be able to play that song because we don't actually listen to it when we record and it just gets spliced in after. And Serge Plotnikov is just so refreshing. And the best thing that I think has happened all year, at least for the podcast, is one of our patrons was gifted a Serge Plotnikov LP record from his partner, which is Very just cool. adorably dorky, and I love it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on our live stream. We're on Facebook Live. People are starting to join us. Hopefully more do. Share this. Tell others. On today's special Live two hundredth episode, we're going to be talking about what the pandemic has meant for politics, both at the political science level and at the gritty day-to-day political strategy level, and hence we've invited a political strategist, Stuart Prest, and a Sorry, a political strategist, Jillian P. Stead, and a political scientist, Zuart Prest. Uh, Welcome both back to the podcast.
2: Thanks very much.
3: Thank you. And I'll say retired political strategist, Ian. Retired.
0: Digital (laughs) strategist now, right?
3: Digital.
2: My political advice is free and worth every penny.
0: (laughs) I want to acknowledge before we begin that I'm recor- we're recording this, albeit remotely, from one another on the ancestral and unceded territories of the Honkamanum and Squamish speaking peoples of the Coast Salish territories here around Metro Vancouver. Thank you as well to the 100, and 50, 100 plus patrons who support this show, giving us $350 a month. We launched our Patreon a couple, several months after launching the podcast, and They have just been overwhelmed, not just that people want to listen to it, but that they want to give us money, and that has helped cover the costs of hosting, the costs of various equipment and gear, costs of studio when we were meeting in person, but now that would be a highly infectious close space where we'd be projectiling at each other. Uh, And it also bought a lot of beer, uh, especially in the early days when we were drinking Pacific Pilsner on it. Thank you also to BC Today, Shannon Waters. Uh, Allison Smith, and the whole team there. They've been supporting the show um, indirectly for quite a while. We built a partnership with them shortly after they launched. Their newsletter has been an invaluable source of news for us. Everyone who's not signed up for it should, if you like this show, you will like BC Politics. You should at very least follow Shannon Waters. We have her on the show all of the time, PoliticsToday.news. But let's jump into it. I said we wanted to talk about the big-picture stuff, but there's actually news this week, and I didn't really want to talk news, but when you have someone drop out or announce their resignation of, in a such a narrow B.C. legislature, it could mean something. So Surrey White Rock MLA, B.C. Liberal Tracy Reddies, is going to become the new CEO of Science World, which is something I think everyone on this show thinks is really cool, but it means Surrey White Rock will be having possibly a by-election uh, she'll officially resign on august 30th or august 31st and the by election will have to be i think it's within 6 months of that so it might take it into the early spring this is a very strong liberal riding what do we think's going to happen if anything i'll take it liberal hold <laughs> Jillian, any insights?
3: Yeah, I mean, so I I spoke to an NDP insider about this earlier today and they said, uh, you know, look, the NDP is under no illusions that this is a winnable seat at this point in time. So, I mean, I do have that piece of of intel there. But I think on a personal level, um, so I actually uh, was around at the BC Liberal Party as the communications manager when we nominated Tracy Reddys. And it was a really exciting moment for the party because she was a really different candidate than um, some of the ones that we were nominating at the time, some of the ones that you might expect from the BC Liberal Party. And I have to say she is one of those people who is a really compelling individual. She's very kind. She's very intelligent. She's very competent. Um, You know, she had a similar quality to Christy Clark in that she's one of those people who can make you feel really important, who can make you feel really heard and like you're the only person in a one kilometer radius. So I would say a massive loss, not only for the BC Liberals, But I think also for British Columbians in general and, you know, a whole generation of women who, you know, might uh, have really enjoyed seeing Tracy Reddys, who, in my opinion, was sort of a a front bencher in the wings. Um, So, you know, I think that that's uh, that's really regrettable. I think it's absolutely science world's game. Uh, You know, they're doing some pretty cool things right now. Maybe it's the whole Dr. Bonnie Henry, the world needs more nerds campaign. Maybe that (laughs) compelled Tracy Reddys to go over there. Um, but I think from a strategic standpoint, a communication standpoint, there's two really interesting things that uh, stand out for me with this piece of news. Um, one, it's the timing. This falls one week after John Horgan, you know, slowly started socializing the uh, the idea of an early election. I think the other thing is, is in her interview with Rob Shaw, Uh, very telling that she said thank you and sort of her goodbye remarks, her reflection remarks to sort of the Carol Jameses of the world, um, failed to mention the actual leader of the party. So I do think that's really telling. Uh, From a communications perspective, it'll be really interesting to see how the BC Liberals manage that moving forward.
0: Stuart, do you think it's fortuitous that right after there's musing of a provincial election and a BC Liberal jump ship.
2: Um, I mean, it is it is interesting, and you you do have to wonder whether it says something about just how how liberals are feeling uh, with the prospect of a potential election looming. That uh, perhaps there's a little less uh, enthusiasm for this. The party is uh, um, it, it's. it's I mean, fair to say it's, it's not where it was a few years ago in terms of strength and uh, and and uh, the the NDP under Horgan in the midst of this pandemic, and we're going to get to this in a, a few minutes, I think, but there's a, um, a sense that this is about as good a place as the NDP has been in for a while. And so you might see a, a couple of other liberals looking for further options. I mean, it, it may be just a straw in the wind. It's a bit early to tell, but but it's, it's something to watch for sure. And uh, um, the idea of Getting used to elections again is an interesting one, right? We have in all these different uh, as, uh, facets of life uh, this idea where we're kind of reacquainting ourselves with some kind of new normal. And we just heard the announcement in NBC about what what going back to school might look like for K to twelve, and uh, as a, a father of a six and eight year old, that's news I was watching closely. But here we we're getting used to perhaps the idea of what an election might look like. And so if we see a if we see a race play out. Uh, uh, in the, the near term, that might give us a sense of what, a, what a, a, an early election might look like in the, the medium term for the, the province as a whole.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, election species can have a challenge on its hands if we actually do go to a full general election in the fall. So, having a test run of a by election and can work out all the uh, kinks of a pandemic voting system would probably not be a bad idea.
0: It's weird. It took me until like a couple weeks ago until I finally signed up for all of the press releases from the government of BC, doing this podcast for almost four years, and I just wasn't getting them because I hadn't signed up, because anyone can sign up for them. And one of the things that came out this last week is be- Elections BC has released their election readiness and COVID uh, plan, their strategy, and some of the things they'll be looking at around you know postal ballots, uh, physical distancing at uh, in-person things, reducing touch consoles if you have to sign your name or something like that. So they've already thought of it and I think they released it almost on, it might have even been on the same day Horgan was musing about an election, which was just kind of funny and unfortunate timing, but clearly they've been thinking about it for a while. Uh, At least we don't have politicians in this country talking about just canceling a federal election or an election because of, uh, voter fraud and everything else, but that's America.
2: Cancel the election until we know what's going on. Not a great place for a democracy to be. But it, it does actually get at this. There is a bit of a bind here, right? Where we are in a, a space in which we are trying to avoid unnecessary risks. And yet, as a democracy, we want also to be in a place where we can hold government to account. It's crucial that we can do that on a, uh, on a regular basis. And we are in a, a minority uh, situation. So, an election could happen uh not literally anytime but just about any time and uh, and so we're there's this balancing of, of risks and, and readiness and uh, um it's a it's a strange sort of place for a democracy to be in i think it's it's entirely imp- appropriate for elections Canada to or sorry elections bc to be, be thinking about what an election should look like and and if we have a a, a uh, a by-election to practice some of these, I think that, that is actually, uh, healthy for the province. But, uh, the question of a, uh, a general election for the province is a different thing entirely.
0: Yeah, this is unlikely to be a big change by election. Historically governments don't do well in BC by elections. Uh, the NDP has picked up the occasional weird seat in a by-election like Chilliwack Hope. But I mean, this is a seat that's got, I think like a 35 point gap, uh, The Liberals have been drooping a little bit over the last few elections, but they're still taking, I think a plurality or almost a small majority of the vote there. So unlikely to be very exciting. So we'll still stay at that razor's edge. Uh, The other news that came out in this past week is the BC green race has grown by 50%. There is now Cam Brewer, a lawyer and academic who has joined the race. Uh, He's a a teacher at SFU, I believe. His initial platform is very focused on environmentalism, unsurprisingly, for a Green. Um, But I think we have seen the BC Greens try to broaden a bit. And how I read his initial focus is coming back to a bit more of the, I don't know, environmental focus on it. But he does talk about guaranteed income, um, affordable housing, and some of the other things that the Greens have been talking about. I don't know. I think it's still Sonia first announced to lose, but we'll definitely have Cam on the podcast so we can claim to have had an interview with every green leadership candidate at the provincial level, at least.
1: Yeah, so there's been rumors for weeks now about a third person entering the race, and I guess we finally uh, see who it is.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's, an, uh, by all means, uh, like on paper, his resume is very impressive. Uh, you know, an Aboriginal lawyer, I think, you know, an SFU professor as well, or, or some sort of an instructor there. Um, but I think it's going to take a lot more than a good resume to stand out right now. And I think, you know, I, I agree with Ian's assessment. I think Sonia Firstenal, again, going back to 2017, um, even before that, around the uh, Shawnigan Lake issue, I remember watching her from, you know, the government sidelines and going, this person is a serious threat, this person has real um, clout with the grassroots. So it'll be really interesting to see if she can transform that grassroots power that she has to a more provincial level. And I have to say at this point in time, I still think she has that advantage.
2: I think being an incumbent, being a Um, having demonstrated that she she can win is a, a huge thing for the green party where they just they can 't take that for granted in any any uh, district in the in the province, and so the, that is an enormous advantage for 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 first now and uh, the, the the party uh, it will be interesting to see how this this race evolves because the party is clearly at a crossroads any anytime a leader departs uh, just about by definition but uh, here we have a green party it has something of a, a regional presence on the on the island but but not much else beyond that. So it's really a question of, well, what, is this, what does this Green Party stand for? Is it going to be trying to find a, a middle space uh, on the left-right spectrum between uh, the Liberals and the NDP? Is it going to try to uh, really double down on environmental-specific issues? Is, well, what, what is this party going to be? Because it clearly has residents it it can uh, command uh, attention as a third party in the province, but but where does it go from here? And I, I'm hoping to hear some of those answers from from the different candidates, uh, the different candidates, and uh, and we'll have to uh, have to, as Jillian says, uh, hear more than just resumes. here, plan for each of uh, from each of the candidates for the party. It will be interesting to watch in that regard.
0: Well, it was definitely interesting to see in the past week the BC Greens and Adam Olson take like specific targets at some of the. Government's agenda. Uh, they, st- you know, they take credit for stalling the uh, bill twelve. I think it is the one around um, putting
3: bill seventeen and twenty two.
0: Twenty two. Twenty two is the one I think. I think i I think I am thinking of um, the one around uh, stabilization care. Putting youth who are admitted with addictions issues and serious issues into hospital into some kind of involuntary um position uh Mm -hmm. and the Greens said there's a lot of issues with the uh bc civil liberties and many others have raised questions about it and then the other is this independent power producer amendments that the ndp was changing where there's actually a lot of green support for this idea it was a bc liberal push in the first place but the ndp was trying to tweak it and suggest how um these small power producers could sell uh, electricity across the province and across the continent and Adam Olson said there hadn't been enough consultation with Indigenous communities and notably a number of First Nations do run these kind of projects. So an interesting move. Uh, Andrew Weaver in, notably came out and blasted them for not uh, operating in enough good faith and no surprises with the government. But it might just be a difference in, a difference in strategy, I guess, between the two leaders or a difference in style.
2: Mm-hmm. The fact that we're in year three matters as well, right? They're, we're coming to the end of this, this government in the next year or two. And so the, the Greens are going to have to make a decision at some point, they, they can't really enter an election being the, the helpful, helpful supporters of the NDP. You can't just say, well, we were here to, to really help out the NDP, there has to be some way to establish daylight. Uh, and uh, so Olson is doing some of that. And, and each of the leaders, I assume, are going to find ways to do that as well. The Greens have to have a reason to exist.
0: Well, let's pivot a little bit to more national discussion. We might come back to leadership races because the Conservatives are still in one and the federal Greens are in one where the only news that I hear about is like people being kicked out for being racist, which is not the leadership race where I expected that to happen. The question I kind of want to start with here is how are the various politicians doing in this pandemic? Um, We'll start very tangibly and then get to the broader questions about politics and has it changed more generally? Um, Anytime there's a crisis, we expect, I think, to see a bit of a leadership glow, whether it's John Horgan or Doug Ford. People will look fondly upon the person who's in office during a pandemic. Um, It seems like this has worked out well for John Horgan, but not for Jason Kenney. Decreasingly so for uh, Justin Trudeau, but that's more to do with we than anything else.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, if you'd asked me a week ago, I would have said John Harden was acing this. Uh, in the past week, there's been a couple uh, goof-ups. The leadership, or sorry, the election speculation, I think, kind of took everyone off of. Let's all rally around the flag and think about how we stop this pandemic to, oh, look, politics is back again and we have an election to think about. And also the, well, the Americans should just get out of their cars if they're here or people with out of province plates shouldn't be driving, which I, I kind of remember back in the start of this pandemic when the message from the leadership was, we shouldn't be scapegoating people who are perceived to be from out elsewhere for the pandemic.
3: Yeah, I would agree with the assessment that, uh, you know, I, I, I do to think that John Horgan really has ACEs. And I think if you look at it comparatively to some of the other leaders that you've just mentioned, uh, Jason Kenny comes to mind. It really comes down to the positioning. So uh, I would say that John Horgan really truly did take a back seat, particularly at the beginning of this. And he really let the leadership of Dr. Bonnie Henry lead. Uh, And of course we saw Adrian Dix really step up and wow, I have to say, you know, as somebody who worked for the BC Liberal Party um, and who has campaigned against Adrian Dix, What an incredible job for this man. He has done, I think, a really um, exceptional job as a health minister. Um, You know, absolutely stunning me with his ability to answer, you know, some pretty tough questions in both official languages, which has been really cool. I think his social media game uh, that his staff, uh, you know, tweet out, really compassionate tone that he's taken. I think that that's a massive difference because if you actually look at the public appearances that John Horgan has um, done, they have been a lot less frequent than, say, a Jason Kenney or a Doug Ford. So I also think that that's another really big difference.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's a big part of it. But there is something about the, the, the politics of, of the province as a whole that seems like it's, it's helping BC's response, right, where there is a, a pretty broad consensus about what needs to happen here. And I think the Liberals get some credit for that as well, that uh, there isn't, uh, we haven't found uh, sort of fights picked over this issue or that issue. There was a a pretty quick coming together around. This is broadly the outlines of what BC needs to do uh, in order to respond to this. And then so we've we, the focus has been on the executive because because it's a lot of action. right? it's not a, uh, there's been a, a few major pieces of legislation at the federal provincial level, but it's mostly trying to stay on top of things. And so we see the attention placed on on the civil service on uh, Dr Henry and uh, and the ministers who are speaking on behalf of of the executive in that regard and so it seems like uh and 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 then at the same time we have the uh, both the greens and and the liberals not just opposing for the sake of opposition and i think that's to their credit so we have a, a consensus point of view and, and we've sort of hinted at this a couple of times but the moment we move to an election footing if there were to be a, an early early election uh, i'm genuinely concerned that some of that is just going to evaporate like an election has to be about something and uh, in the middle of a pandemic it's probably going to be partly about the pandemic. And so the, that provincial advantage that BC seems to have enjoyed of a, a, a relative consensus, uh, I, that may that may evaporate in the, the context of an election.
0: It's, yeah, the one day of sitting in mid-March when they had to emergency pass a couple bills, and they managed to do it with I think it was 12 people in the legislature in total and I watched mo- pretty much that whole session and there was like a question period but it was the, I think the first time they were like you know nonpartisan, but serious questions and like real answers to those concerns it's like that was really nice yeah <laughs> i get that i get that it's valuable to have our uh, oppositional politics and to have some push and some accountability but just that moment everyone in that house rose to the occasion and i think there was one or two more mlas there than absolutely needed to be the, i think the quorum was 10 and they had 12 or 13 because there was probably someone who's like i need to show up because i want to show up and you're like fine but for the most part they all did work together you know they passed a bill the liberals kept off their major criticisms and they've started to try to find some angles because at some point, if they don't criticize, they fade into irrelevance. And if Horian does pull an early election, or even if there's an election next year, you know, I know I've heard a lot of people who are otherwise sympathetic to the liberals go, this isn't the scary socialist government I thought it was going to be. They seem largely competent, and it is a time when we need more social spending so maybe let them go and that's quite the uphill battle for Andrew Wilkinson to have to face
1: be I mean, uphill battle for any leader to face the fact that Andrew Wilkinson is trouble connecting outside of a boardroom doesn't really help that
0: oh my god that last video I saw of I think it was one of the candidate announcements and the candidate was fine I think it was the candidate for West Capilano um, who was replacing Ralph Sultan and she was fine, but then there were a couple shots of Will. Considering every one, he looked like a robot. And it was just like, stay, he was like picking up a baby, and you're like, don't. He seems like he's a smart, nice, good, you know, honest guy about this thing, but just he doesn't have that sincerity. And so maybe he just shouldn't be out hiking in his videos, he should be in front of a boardroom. Course, I, I remember
1: <laughs> back in 2005 when uh, you know, Air Force was doing constant Stephen Harper's a robot jokes and that didn't stop him from winning
3: yeah and
1: and I, I think. Like, oh sorry yeah, so I was just gonna conclude with that that's also after like 13 years of liberal government that was scandal prone so slightly different situation
3: right yeah and I think you know i just I I full disclosure I voted for Wilkinson as the leader. I volunteered some time on his campaign. I do think that there is a public perception issue. I also think that on top of the uphill battle, there's a messaging uh, conversation that needs to happen with the BC Liberal Party. I actually, before this podcast, went into the 2017 platform. I went into the 2013 platform. I went into the 2009 platform and there is a phrase that you see over and over again on those pages and that is the decade of doom the decade of decline the scary 90s um that narrative this will be the first election whenever it happens it will be the first election where they can no longer play that they can no longer play that card they need to come up with a new narrative because gone are the days where the public is concerned about five straight consecutive balance budgets i think to your point ian Um, This is now a time where we need to look after each other. Uh, I know one of the things we're gonna talk about a little bit later is the question of big government. Um, So the BC Liberals really, I think, from a messaging standpoint, are gonna have to do a lot of soul searching to come up with what that new narrative looks like. Uh, And it's gotta be something completely different than what they're used to.
0: It's funny when the BC NDP was first in and for their first, I don't know, it was like a year, maybe even two and a half years, every third word they said was 16 years and they just kept harking back to, you know, the years of the BC liberals and like, they cut this and they cut that. And this is a mess because of them. They can probably run some of that messaging. Like you don't want to go back to that this time around. uh, But you know, these messages have a short shelf life. Eventually you have to run on your own record.
3: Yeah. And new ideas, frankly. Um, So that's another thing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, Liberal Party does not seem to have done a great job of idea generation in the past uh, couple of years.
2: I mean, that is something that you often see with parties that are in office for a long period of time, they have trouble Finding a leader to to continue on, to continue on with a, a lot of energy with with new ideas, just because they they've used up a lot of their good ideas in previous uh, previous, previous uh, governments. And I think uh, the the liberals in BC are facing some of the same challenges that the conservatives are federally. In some ways, they're very different parties, but when, we, when it comes to say. Uh, Trying to balance environment and, and uh, economic development type issues, where uh, to 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 have this uh, very strong voice for development of economic resources in the province, but also to to signal to voters in, in more urban settings that they're really going to take. Environmental issues seriously. This is a, a, a enormous challenge for the conservatives and I federally. And I don't think they've uh, figured it out yet. But but it's a bit of a challenge for for the liberals as well because they can they can do well in a lot of the uh, the rural parts parts of the province and and make appeals to being uh, on top of. Uh, economic issues and, and resource development issues. They have a pretty good record of, in trying to champion those things, but but that's not necessarily going to be enough to get uh, pick up the seats they need in places like the lower mainland. So they are going to have to give some more thought about how do you be a party of the not early 21st century, we're getting towards the, the, the early mid 21st century and they're going to have to find a different identity as well.
0: And the liberals were the ones who brought in the carbon tax and not just that's brought right. it in, but like built it in a way that no one could tear it down. So, you know, they have some cred to walk walk on on the environment, but it kind of just stalled, and they need to, like Julian, I think, said, is come up with new ideas and broaden it. But you mentioned the federal conservatives, and then let's you know talk briefly federally. <laughs> Justin what are we Trudeau talk about huh? <laughs> <laughs> so Justin Trudeau had somewhat of a glow around the federal handling of. COVID-19, I think, especially outside of BC, they got a lot more attention than the provincial ministers, except maybe Quebec, where everyone was watching Francois Legault, uh, who apparently also rose to the occasion somehow. Um, I don't know enough about Quebec politics to say more than that, How do, but, you know, Trudeau's his own worst enemy in every single situation, and his single greatest strength at this point seems to be not having an effective opposition on any side the ndp is a little bit stronger but they're still not if there was another election today i don't think singh would grow the party much beyond where it was maybe he'd pick up a few more seats in BC and elsewhere but they wouldn't get back to the Leighton or even the Malcare days and the conservatives are in utter confused disarray and it's a leadership race so that's to be expected but i don't i don't know we'll Peter McKay or O'Toole fix their systemic issues?
2: We can, I don't know if we can answer that question. It's, it's hard to get a good read on this leadership race. Peter McKay seems to be going out of his way not to make it a race at all, just to, to play out the clock, right? It's like watching a, um, uh, I don't know, do they still play basketball, right? Uh, they're just, uh, uh, remember sports? Don't sport? ask me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the NBA is back, baby. They're gonna—they're uh, starting off oh, the season uh, now, and
3: that's good. Uh, never are,
2: are tact- they
1: gonna last longer than the baseball season did?
2: Uh, well, I mean, baseball technically is still going. It's just they're, they're, losing, I thought they'd... they're, they're losing entire teams, right? So we're now we're this is like the st- strategy my students use to get me off track. But uh, uh, <laughs> let's talk some sports. And uh, so the Jays—they don't have a game to play this weekend because they can You're not allowed to play against the Phillies because they have—they have, they have uh, the COVID. So. Um, uh, but what I was going to say was uh, just playing out the clock, right? And, and we're not really getting uh, a sense of uh, we get the hints of uh, O'Toole would be a little more in touch with some of the uh, the, the, the grassrootsy elements of the Conservatives, uh, a little uh, more abrasive in style, and so on. And uh, yet beyond that, those fundamental challenges that the, the Conservative Party really has to grapple with you can't you can't run up uh, uh, the score in in Alberta and Saskatchewan and just not. Show up in in urban centers and hope to to govern Canada and, and in this this era. And so uh, there are questions that they have to answer there, and we're we're just not getting a sense of them. And I think the, some of the, the the policies that they're introducing. So, Tool has an environmental policy, which I think is uh, worth a look at. It's not um, it's not getting a lot of scrutiny, but but it, we're just we don't know what what the party is is going to look like coming out of this. And so, uh, I mean, Trudeau is is lucky, and yet he's also in some ways being done a disservice allowing himself to be his own worst me- enemy, as you, you mentioned, you know, because there isn't a, a very strong voice in opposition to him right now. And so he's he's filling in the gap by being in his, his own strongest opponent right now and uh, and just stepping on rake after rake.
1: I'm actually surprised there hasn't been more discussion within the uh, conservative leadership race on how they actually win. There was that McKay comment before he even started his campaign about how the social conservative issues... Uh, didn't need to be brought up in the election and were an albatross around their necks when they were trying to win. And uh, like you just said, Aaron O'Toole's put out s- some stuff about needing a better environmental platform, but that's been about it. There's been surprisingly little discussion about what is actually going to take to not just run up the scoreboard at rural Saskatchewan.
0: How many uh, elections do you have to lose before you're leadership race is actually about that question. Cause I feel like the first one or two are just all the factions in the party trying to like curry favor and settle scores. And then it's, you know, maybe the third race. I don't think that was tr- necessarily true of the BC liberals case, but you know, the-, the
3: advice I always give: it's two, baby. It's two, but uh, I guess if you have an extra lifeline, maybe three. But uh, that's the that's the rule I always give out to clients. Very, you know, a lot of people uh, don't follow that advice, but that's in my opinion, that's how many shots you have. Uh, I I'm incredibly bored by this conservative race. I think it's you know, if we're talking about uh, luck on Trudeau's side, well, man, is there bad luck on this conservative uh, race side. Uh, I do not look at these candidates and I do not see anybody who I think, uh, again, if we're going to talk about new ideas, I don't see any real new ideas. And I think further to your point, if there are any, they're certainly not being talked about. They have, what, less than a month to go until that vote. Um, I don't expect anything to really change on the national stage after this. I find it to be a very underwhelming race.
0: At least we're not talking about supply management.
3: (laughs) Whatever happened to that guy?
0: <laughs> uh, let's not talk about him. <laughs>
1: so in theory, the leader of the opposition is going to be at least slightly more effective, but that's only because the bar was set so low by Andrew Shear. can really only go up.
2: Yeah, made that assessment. That might actually be one of the reasons why the conservatives are having more trouble having that larger conversation, because it's pretty easy to say, "Man, Andrew Shear really—he uh, left, uh, you know—he left, left some, uh, some some points on the field. I don't know what kind of for a reason now, but he's he he he'd, um, he had a chance and, and he kind of blew it." And uh, and uh, there was an election win for the taking, and so if if that's true, if you accept that premise, then the conservatives don't need to uh, to retool. They don't need to to reimagine themselves. They just need to execute better. And I think that's partly where the the party or some of the thinking in the party landed. And so uh, don't don't go for a, a larger reinvention if we just need to uh, you know, make it. Uh, make hay where the possibility uh possibilities are there when when trudeau makes a mistake just make sure we we uh capitalize on it and we don't uh, um you know, when, when uh, there, there are multiple photos of the, the prime minister appearing in brownface, you make sure you win that election because that's, a, that's, a, a pre, uh, that's an opportunity that missed. And, uh, and a, as a result, I think the, the party does have these larger issues, these, these fundamental contradictions that they haven't resolved, but you might overlook them if you think that you just sort of, you, you're Mr. you missed your first opportunity.
0: Well, looking beyond Canada, is it even worth talking about some of the you know the other bigger stories. I mean, America is such a mess. Like the history of this podcast is, we started right around, right in the midst of the 2016 U.S. federal election, and I think we did a, our test episode at like a post debate watching party, where we just shot the shit about uh, Trump v. Clinton, and then things went bad and have just continually gone bad for three and a half, almost four years now how does biden biden <laughs> not screw this up and what happens like what happens in november are we optimistic that things will go smoothly and they'll return to a little less terrible soon
2: uh, no not going to Things aren't going to go smoothly. Um, but we are, The U.S. is in a, a prolonged cycle of what you can call contentious politics, if you like, but uh, where there are fundamental disagreements disagre- about uh, what politics is for and even the rules of the game. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strange facet of the American uh, political system where the rules of the game are... Are, are part of the spoils of the game, where if you are in control of state legislatures, you have a, a great deal of uh, control over the way in which elections play out. And so we see this, um, uh, the, the real possibility that the election is not going to play out in a, in a way that's uh, completely free and fair in every every state in the union. And that's uh, that's a, not a comfortable place for the country to be in. And uh, on top of that, when you have the president, we're still in the not even done July, and the president is tweeting about the possibility of delaying an election and uh, the possibility that it's going to be a, a fraudulent election. And so we're, we're just having a table set for uh, what's going to be a, a, just a potentially terrifying November, I, I gotta say.
1: Yeah there's, yeah, there's a non-zero chance that he doesn't accept the outcome of the election, and it's an outcome that looks increasingly certain to be him losing. Right. He,
2: yeah i mean if we if we trust the polls do you trust polls anymore yeah american presidential polls
1: um like a t- 10 point gap it's you know even with the margin of error it's pretty clear that Biden's winning right biden is winning comfortably
2: now i think we can be comfortable with that kind of kind of assessment but there's this um I mean, things can happen. The race can tighten. There will be scrutiny of Biden uh, ongoing, and uh, this is—these are just things that happen during an American election. So the the, the margin for error shrinks, and if there are uh, a number of jurisdictions where the, the race is not come to the election, there are irregularities in the election. That that's those there are there there are reasons to, to I don't know not relax anyways. And uh, um, even if Trump goes away kind of grumbling the fact that the, the society is so polarized some of his supporters might not accept the result either right so we have that uh, that dynamic as well so uh trump may eventually ha- walk off the stage or not have the have the, the mic taken from him because there are institutions within uh the u.s we have seen the uh, we have seen uh democracy continue on but uh but it, it is going to be a, a contentious process i think
3: I I listened to Nate Silver in 2016 on his podcast, and uh, they basically, he had a panel of very qualified people, very smart people, and they sat there, and I kid you not, they basically conceded to the fact that it was a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton would win that election. It was one of the, (laughs) hate to use the word again, but most underwhelming podcasts that I had listened to because they were so smug with themselves and so complacent and so you know just resigned to the fact they had already accepted the results and of course what did we see that night well that's (laughs) we'd be having a very different conversation today but i also think guys there's another thing you need to look at and that is campaigning campaigning in the age of pandemics in america it's going to look very 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 different this time around Gone are the days where you can, with good conscience, hold those massive rallies where you sell out those huge stadiums. Trump can do it because he's put all of his eggs in the basket that this thing is curable, it's going away, they've got a handle on it. Biden has a much harder time trying to trying to convince people to come out to those stadiums. That is part of his value. Um, So you've got to look at it like that. People are going to be less inclined to open their doors, door knocking being a huge piece of this. The Democrats really rely on that grassroots vote. Pulling those votes in those neighborhoods is going to be a whole lot harder this time around. Digital campaigning is going to be huge, not only digital campaigning, um, you know, from the official party, but from those super PACs as well, that's going to be massive, they're going to have to be really on point with their targeting, really on point with their message. The last thing I will say, and I'm a digital strategist, I live and breathe this stuff, this uh, social media landscape is going to look very different than the last time around. Uh, Facebook has the heat on it at this point in time. They are going to be on both sides of the fence, including those packs, under way more scrutiny than they're used to. Facebook, you know, I work for clean energy clients where I can't even say that a client who has solar, hydro and wind power in their diverse portfolio, that is flagged now by Facebook as a political issue. So these guys are going to have a lot harder of a time campaigning this time around. Those dirty tricks are going to be a lot harder to pull. And so I think it's going to be a fascinating exercise to watch just purely from a polling votes and campaigning perspective.
0: Thank God. On that note, I've tried like running ads for the podcast in the past year, and it's so annoying to get yourself verified to run them, which I've done, mm-hmm. and then link that to your pages which I've done for some, but it fails on others. And then mm-hmm. to Facebook doesn't want my money is all I've concluded. And I think <laughs> that's largely because I want to give them like 20 or 50 bucks instead of like 20,000 or 50,000. Oh, so I, like,
3: I try and give them the 20,000 Ian. They don't want it either. You know, all I'm saying is solar, hydro and wind, highly political issue at this point in time, according to Facebook.
0: I mean, they'll all give you cancer, right? <laughs> <sighs> Let's switch gears given the time to some of the bigger picture questions. Let's talk political science, let's talk pandemics, and let's talk how things are changing far more broadly. We've talked specifically about some of the shifts towards more cooperation here in BC and some of that predated the pandemic arguably just by the nature of having a minority government. But do we see, I mean, the question is just, Has politics fundamentally changed at least the politics we've been talking about British Columbia, Canada, a bit of the Western world, or are we expecting things to kind of just drift back to the mean longer term.
3: Well,
2: I think some things are changing and, and some things not so much. Like we've seen with uh, issues like the, the WE controversy federally and uh, and the, the um, initial usings about an early election, we can see how we can fall back into old rhythms of politics uh, uh, fairly quickly. And that's not entirely a bad thing, right? Holding government to account for irregular spending decisions, that, that is something we want to see happen in a democracy. The, the readiness to, to have an election when one is called for, that's something to, you want to be able to see in a democracy. But the idea that um, there are significant projects that government has to undertake on our, our behalf, and that we can actually come to an agreement on how to undertake those, that's an idea that uh, we have seen proven again. This is a, if we want to take those sort of the long view, uh, longish view, uh, uh, government in uh, in the 20th century, for a time, there was a, a pretty broad enthusiasm for what government could do, what it could accomplish. And coming out of uh, the, the Great Depression, Second World War, government was instrumental in, in recovery, in, in doing big things, in, in organizing in significant aspects of the entire economy. And uh, and so there was a enthusiasm for government uh, government 's ability to to solve some kinds of, uh, of major problems, and that waned over time and we saw increasing emphasis on uh, on a more individualistic approach in the 80 s and 90 s and so on and so i think we 're seeing the pendulum swing back a little bit here to this idea that there we 're all in this together, and there are things that we we need to accomplish collectively as a society and uh, government is a place where we organize those efforts that 's one of the, the uh, central reasons that it exists and so that that affirmation of of uh, uh, collective projects and a collective ability to to, to, to do things. That, that's that been uh, reaffirmed somewhat, and not everywhere, not to the same extent. I don't think that's the way in which the story gets told in the United States, for instance, but, but here in B.C., and to a significant extent, I think, at the federal level, that's that's one of the stories of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, so back in March, there was basically two types of articles that media was putting out there was a oh my god this is what's happening now and then there was the this changes everything article and probably about 95 percent of them were wrong but it's hard to say what that five percent that is going to be right is but overall i think pretty much all the predictions about this is going to be a permanent change aren't going to come true but there will be a small set that will
3: ian's question was around do we think that this pandemic is going to change politics i'm not going to answer that question will this pandemic change people's values and the way that they vote i i am hopeful that it does i mean i'm thinking about politics now uh and issues um are completely different than i did in say march um you know gone are the days where we have these advocacy groups going to government and saying you need to raise the welfare rate, you need to um, consider what a minimum basic income could look like. And they said, you're crazy, that's never gonna happen, it's not doable, it's not possible. Well, we've just proven that that's all possible at this point in time. So what is it going to take for the voting population, increasingly more you know, millennial-minded people as we become the biggest uh, voting bloc in this country, What is it going to take for us to finally say enough is enough? That old way was not working for us, and we demand something different, something that's more equitable, something that works for us. I think similarly around climate change, it was always, you know, we've got to do this slowly, we've got to do this slowly. You know, anything that we do isn't really going to result in meaningful change. Well, we stopped flying planes for a couple of months, and all of a sudden you could see through the Los Angeles Valley, You could see through the bottom of Venice. You could see through Tehran and Shanghai and everything was all of a sudden clear. We've now proven that there are things that we can be doing to lower our emissions. So I'm really curious to see what people take away from this pandemic. Things that they always told us could not be done. It wasn't possible. Um, I wonder how much people are going to put pressures on governments to say, we know it's possible. Now you need to do something. And I truly hope that that is the case. I hope I'm right. Um, That's what I'm really going to be looking for at the other side of all of this.
0: There was such a like feeling or sense, at least for me, very early on in that March, April period that, oh, this is the point when anything is possible. Like it turns out, oh, you actually can bring policy in in a matter of weeks and it doesn't take years. Mm -hmm. Now, often it's better like the CERB had a bunch of holes and needed to be plugged and redone a bunch of times, but that was a big program to roll out really fast. And BC did a number of things as well. And so that, I would say
3: the seniors care, seniors care yes, is a really good example. We can't be doing that kind of stuff. No, 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 no was always the default. And then all of a sudden when push came to shove, that's what was, you know, that's what we were able to implement. And that we are a much better society because of that, I I would argue.
0: I totally agree. And that was, you know, March and April. By May, it slowed down a little. June kind of stalled. And July, now it's suddenly like, especially, I think maybe it's also just the we scandal is like really re-cementing, like, no, actually the forces of how politics has been are very strong. And the keep the status quo going is such a like, desire among, I don't want to say a political class, but just among like
2: well, the, the bureaucracy, <laughs>
0: you know, the Laurentian elite for sure. You know, <laughs> <laughs> basically everyone in Ottawa, the Ottawa bubble, let's complain about them. We're on the West coast. We can do that. But there is a desire, I think to not do too much too fast. And we're in a time when we need to do a lot and we have done a lot, but you know, can we keep that progress going? Can we look at things differently? Um, Hopefully.
3: Yeah, I I truly do hope so.
1: Yeah, I think there will be more of that. And it was already, I think, a a movement towards that. Uh, So back in, I think it was January, uh, Tyler Cowen, an American economist with a fairly libertarian outlook who's, at least influential in those circles. Uh, Did a big, you know, state capacity libertarianism, he called it uh, post about how it's time for the libertarians to realize that you need state capacity to do some things to further overall liberty. And like that was fairly prescient with everything that happened, but like those circles I think had been moving in that direction already. And this has just accelerated that.
0: I mean, the other big thing that has really changed is, like, global politics in a way and the way countries interact with one another. I mean, I don't think you or I, Scott, at least, had ever thought we would be okay with, let alone possibly happy to see borders close. I think we're both very broadly, like, internationalists and cosmopolitan in that way, and fewer borders is generally better but suddenly it's like, no, keep, keep the toxins out. Keep the bad stuff out, especially when some countries are just out of control.
3: But it, yeah, it's, it's keep the bad stuff out, but it's also like keep control of what we can within. Like, I think that you will see this big or we already are seeing this big shift to nationalism. Um, And I think I would agree with you uh, and your leanings before before all of this happened. But now I am starting to think about, you know, how can we look more internally to sustain ourselves and to set ourselves up for success and to have that um, supply chain have, you know, full sight of it uh, and not have it, you know, crumble again at the, you know, next second wave or third wave or whatever horrible catastrophe happens next. I think that that's also something we're going to have to contend with in the years to come. I think there were already states that were uh, already there. You know, I'm thinking about China and the U.S. in particular, but uh, I think you're starting to see a lot more of that even in the European Union at this point in time.
2: It will be difficult, though, because Canada is still so uh, enmeshed in in the American orbit, right? So we are in a, a world where there is not... There isn't a single leader uh, globally. So much of the last seventy years, the the U.S. was a sort of central uh, tentpole for the international community, and uh, you wouldn't necessarily agree with everything uh, that it did, but it, it was a, a a point around which the global political order was organized. And uh, and there there just isn't anything like that anymore. And yet we are still attached to the the, the declining American, uh, um, uh, but. Uh, what do you want call it, the sphere of influence. And uh, so we're, we're, we're within that. And so we're seeing Canada as being placed in awkward situations where we need to keep our borders open in some way. So trade has to continue on because we we just aren't self-sufficient. We are dependent on that that interaction with the U.S. We are looking for ways to, to diversify, but the options are limited. It means uh, we have to confront these difficult questions like, does, does Canada want to do business with China, given what is going on with regard to human rights in China right now? These are... All difficult questions, and so Canada is having to chart its own direction, but also do so in a in a, a world where uh, there are there are fewer real partners, and uh, um, and we are uh, we're a middle tier country. We can do some things, but we can't we can't just go off on our own.
1: Yeah, we're, we're a small country, and that's going to make stuff like bringing supply chains back home very difficult because the specialization that an economy can have is directly proportional to the number of people and the size of the market it serves. And with modern supply chains being so complex with so many parts moving in them, it's gonna be hard at 38 million, I think we're up to now, 37, uh, to do all of that domestically. And we're gonna have to be strategic about what we can onshore and what's not feasible.
0: Maybe just to close off our questions on politics and pandemics and things, send a little more optimistically and then we'll get self-indulgent and just take a couple or reflect a little on 200 episodes just before we close quickly. But to end optimistically, what's one thing going around the panel you're all looking forward to politically going forward, either big picture or even just little thing, whether it's a by-election or... A fundamental change in how people relate
1: not having to worry about with the president's tweeting at 5 a.m
0: <laughs> hopefully actually with how old biden is that might still be an issue
1: he doesn't seem uh, if there's one thing biden has going for him is that he is completely unaware of what's happening on twitter and that's to his strength <laughs>
3: For me, it's to see a generation of AOCs come into play. You know, like to me, that that, that is an incredibly exciting um, moment in time to see a woman like her that women, you know, my age, older than me, younger than me, look up to. Regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, you can look at her and respect her and, and like just, you know, admire her hustle and admire who she is and what she's doing for her country. Um, You know, I thought maybe we were going to talk a little bit more about the fall election, and I was going to bring up the topic of, you know, the NDP may have this advantage uh, going into the polls in British Columbia here. I said, I was going to say, only if they can nominate some better candidates this time around. That's the opportunity. I'm giving you free advice right now, NDP. Like, I honestly think that for you guys to realize the opportunity, you need to usher in a whole new brand of candidates I'm not saying you're going to find AOCs left, right, and center, nor is that you know necessarily um, appropriate for every riding here in British Columbia. But I would love to see an era of young people who come in and drive their own social media, get out of their messaging box, inspire people, talk a little bit bigger, a little bit less on the talking points, a little bit less about the, the boring things, and just dream a little bit bigger. That's my politics, and that's what I'm really excited about Maybe we won't see it here in British Columbia, but I sure as hell hope that it happens sometime uh, in Canada, anywhere really for that matter.
0: More Bowen Maws. Like more exciting than her. No, she's she's
3: fantastic. Yeah, no, I think she's great. Totally,
0: Mm hundred percent. Stuart.
2: Well, I think um, it's a a cautious optimism. We're having a bunch of conversations now that we didn't really talk about. prior to the last few years we seem to be um uh, the politics is is a bit more of a uh, uh, an open field at the moment where we can talk about issues that previously were were you know we did lip service to where we're saying we you know we want to have uh jillian was talking about we, we want to have a place for women in politics but are we really going to do much about it where we are confronting um Issues around gender equality, with movements like Me Too, we are confronting issues around uh, 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 racial equality, equality with uh, with uh, Black Lives Matter, and we're having regular marches and protests, and and so. Um, younger Canadians around the age that I'm I'm teaching are, are much more likely to take up these issues and and take them seriously and then we're seeing that con- conversation uh continue on so it's not just sort of dismissed as oh this is the thing that students talk about and then when you get out in the real world you figure out how things work no those conversations are continuing on in the real world and they're going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be contentious again to use that word but um at least we're talking about them and at least we are uh seeing some uh some potential for, for movement as well and, uh, and in a broad variety of ways. And there's not this feeling that we can only do so much at a time where we're at a moment in politics where we need to do a lot of things simultaneously. And so perhaps we're going to be a little more um, uh, aggressive, a little more uh, adventurous and uh, ambitious with our politics. That's that's a hope. And I think it's in the, in a sense our are social conversations. And uh, I think some of the, the people who are we saying getting involved in, in some of these uh, issues on an issue by issue basis, they haven't really um, made their way into the formal political process. And as a result, the political process, uh, the conversations are lagging behind where they are socially. And so I think there's, there's a bit of a disconnect. And I would be hopeful that we see that, that closed up where politicians are, are getting better at, or maybe we just get different politicians who can talk about those issues a little more openly, a little more frankly.
0: I got the key example of that. And you basically said exactly what I was thinking, Stuart, like the inspiration of the Black Lives Matter protests recently, the entire way people can talk about politics has, I think, changed at least outside the political sphere. But the kind of counterexample of that is today, I think the estimates for the Ministry of the Solicitor General started in public safety. And, you know, this is where you would think that given the societal discussions around defunding police and police budgets and stuff, there would be some hard-hitting questions. But none of the New Democrats are going to ask that question to their own government minister. And the BC Liberals take a slightly different stance on it. And, you know, that's a position that's out there and is largely held and respectable. Uh, and so there's... The conversation that is happening in the public is not always reflected in you know, the halls of our legislature and our parliament. I think that gets to what Jillian said about a need for demographic change in politics. And it comes and it just takes, it's annoyingly slow, but it does follow along. We have, you know, maybe a couple minutes before we should wrap it up. Cause I know you'd have to head off Jillian and my beer ran out. So I should also head off as well. And I've been on mm-hmm. too many zoom calls and streamings today. Um, but we've done 200 episodes, Scott. We've actually done probably like 210 once you count some bonus episodes and a few other things we've released. Yeah, probably about 210. Somewhere in there. We, we so planned- So we wanna
3: know yeah, what's what your you favorite. Do? We wanna know what, which is your favorite episode from each of you.
0: So you asked this earlier by email, which would have given me time to think about it. <laughs> but I-
3: Now I'm putting you on the spot. Very
0: much didn't. Um, I have loved most of our interviews. We've interviewed some great people over the couple of years. It's yeah, been, having
1: uh, Stephen Carter from The Strategist <laughs> on was really fun.
0: Yeah, because we when I was thinking about starting this podcast, I was like, I kinda want a like strategist type podcast, but for all for BC politics. And then their podcast went off the air. Uh, they canceled it shortly after we started and then disappeared kind of for a while. Yeah. Well, and their website, they, their website expired, all of their stuff expired. And then they just like relaunched a month ago or so pretending as though nothing ever happened. So that was fun. Uh, David was always fun to have. Uh, Lindsay Ted's was a great supporter and great guest Every time we had her on Kevin Milligan, all the economists and academics, you Stuart have always been good. You were fun Jillian on your past appearances and the live shows. The live shows are amazing. They're so much fun, especially when you can see the audience instead of I can just like see the number of people watching on <laughs> Facebook and they're not even leaving comments for us. So I can't answer those.
3: Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> and so in terms of like feature guests, what does the next year uh, hold? Who do you guys want to get? Who's, you know, tier one, big gets we're talking here.
0: You go first, Scott.
1: Uh, Party leaders, I think. We've interviewed a few of the leadership candidates, but uh, those are... Actually, think about this more. Former party leaders and former uh, premiers would be particularly interesting. The the thing about interviewing politicians is they always have a message to get out, whereas the ex-politicians are always the better interviews because they don't really have to care too much about what they're message is and to be a lot more truthful and reveal the interesting things
0: yeah we've had david eby on a few times we've had a few other politicians and they'll get so stuck on their message or their line that it's boring um it's kind of why i do like interviewing green party candidate politicians because the they don't thing. care they don't have a line to repeat, yeah. <laughs> they, don't ha- they don't have as many lines um Maybe there's a tie in for why they don't do as well, but you know, it is a it is an earnest thing and I like it. You know, my dream get is still and we've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast itself, but is John Horgan, but not to talk politics, but to talk Star Trek.
3: <laughs> Count me out of that one.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Not for everyone.
3: Yeah.
2: No. This controversial takes on Voyager.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I, one thing, just musing uh, on my role as uh, you know a PR strategist, we are seeing a huge push from clients lately to get on some of these smaller podcasts because, again, if you want to reach the grassroots, the people who are the advocates for these different um, different causes, different uh, movements, then you got go to go onto these podcasts. And so, I certainly hope that we usher in a new era of politicians who are not afraid of or above doing these smaller type of podcasts because they actually get a lot more influence or a lot more impact out of doing these types of appearances where they can sit down and really get into the nitty gritty, then they do offer, you know, a global news article. Um, because in a world where there's so many niche media options, um, you really should be going for these, these types. So that's a call to action on Ian and Scott's behalf for me. <laughs> <laughs> do oh, as the clients do, the popularity. Uh, the popular thing you can do is actually uh, start doing some more of these appearances. I'll say part of it is and we reaching. just haven't
0: we just haven't reached out to enough yeah. as many times. I would imagine we could probably get Andrew Wilkinson because I know he's done just what you're saying. Yeah, you you know, know, he's contract, gone on diary. He's, yeah. yeah, he went on This is Van Color, a number of other shows. So we just haven't reached out to his office yet, frankly. And that's because we are very busy. <laughs> we are like <laughs> barely keeping up with, you know, the week's news, but there's lots we want to keep doing. We're going yeah. to keep so doing this. So if you show. want
1: to help us get more people on the <laughs> podcast, go to patreon.com and let us hire a, uh,
2: assistant. Okay, so hey, girl, the fact uh, that you're doing this volunteer is, is really, uh, remarkable. And I think one of the things that, uh, I think is, a uh, uh, really impressive the podcast is not just the podcast itself but the way it's created this sort of community that gets together and and so you see that in some of the other elements of of your your Patreon community and the the funding but also the, the Slack channels there's discussions of, of politics and you just sort of have this this band of folks who like to talk about politics and like to talk about it in a, in a pretty wonky way at times and to, to move uh, there's room for the horse race politics but to move beyond that and to to talk about you know the the, the newest uh, environmental policy documents from the different parties and to actually walk through the, the details of, of the policies being un- enrolled and where is it strong where does it not make sense where does it not add up to to get into that level of detail and, and to have that in a uh, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, a public forum where there is room for, for people just to, to come across different aspects of politics than you would normally hear, where you would normally just see a, a personality-driven contest, and argument on, the, on the, uh, the news highlights and the, the clips put together. And the way, the way in which people consume news, this is just a very different uh, format. And, and you're, you're doing this in your spare time while doing actual day, do- day jobs and things like that. I think it's, it's really impressive.
3: Yeah, congrats, guys. Thanks.
0: Well, I'll let you lead us out, Scott. And that
1: has been ClearCoast. Find links to everything we talked about at Politcoast.ca. Support the show at com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Coast is a production of Legend and Boot Media. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.
0: And thanks for watching. Thank you, everyone. Good night.
3: Thanks. Thanks, guys.